0: About 20 years ago, I brought a uh, group of um, middle schoolers from Southern California up to Salem to be part of a week-long leadership camp, training camp. And uh, one of the things we did during that week is we served over at what used to be Western Baptist College. is now Corbin College. And then um, we also trained the kids uh, how to share their faith, how to evangelize with people and, and tell them about Jesus. and. To practice that, we went up to Portland and and found the strangest place we could and went to uh, Pioneer Square. Have you ever been to Pioneer Square in Portland? Okay, so there's a lot of people there and a lot of different beliefs, a lot of different opinions. And so we spent the afternoon there uh, going around in pairs or groups of three and just engaging complete strangers and talking about spiritual things and trying to talk to them and tell them about Jesus. And I'll never forget a couple of interactions that I had that day. One was with a group of Orthodox Jews. So totally black, you know, they had like the black top hats and the side curls and big beards. And they were actually from back east and they were out for a conference or something. I was able to talk to one and get in a conversation with him, And I just said, what do you, what do you as a Jew, what do you think about Jesus and his, his response was something I've never heard. He said, "Well, Jesus, he was a blasphemer. He carved the name of God into his hands. I'm like, "What are you even talking about? I've never, I've never heard anything like that before, but this is a story that had been handed down that he had believed in his faith about who, who this Jesus uh, that Nazarene was." So it was an interesting conversation. I'm like, how do, you, how do I hear that? How do I listen to that? What's going on there? And then another conversation happened. Just as we were finishing up, there was a, we were gathering together on one of the steps, our group was, but there was still one of our young ladies. She was an eighth grader, and she was in this pretty intense conversation with this adult man, but with her was her dad. And her dad was one of our chaperones on the trip, who was one of our drivers. And uh, they were trying to engage this guy, and this conversation just kept going and going and going. And I kept looking over to make sure they were okay, And at one point, Frank looks over at me, makes eye contact, and he's doing this. Like, come over here. Like, we could use your help here. So I walked over there. I was like, so yeah, what's going on? Just kind of listened. And within a few minutes, um, the guy told me, finally fixed his attention on me, and basically told me, I am Jesus Christ. And um, there's going to be some big things happening. The end of the world is coming. He, he began to tell me all these kind of prophetic things. And I'm going I'm to talk more about him next week, because he said something significant to me that, that was really interesting and still kind of sticks with me. But just juxtaposing those kind of two interactions with, with different people just in the world, a very, you know, a Jewish person who had a very distinct story handed down to him about Jesus, and then someone who probably had you know mental illness or, or something going on. I think he lived on the street and he had um, messianic delusions. Basically, he thought he was Jesus. Now there are a lot of different beliefs out there. Would you agree? And if you go to if you go to Portland, there seem to be more. And there's, there's a lot of different things that, we, that, that people believe or that they grasp onto, and especially spiritual things. And I think part of that is, is there is one Holy Spirit in the world, and there are a lot of other spirits in the world that, this, that the Scriptures tell us about. And it's a fight to discern what is what. And what is true, and some, some things are just obvious, well that's not true, but some things aren't as clear, and when we talk about the word prophecy, which was in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 there quite a bit, that word seems kind of scary to some of us. Some of us are eager to talk about prophecy. When I mention the word prophecy, I know there's some of you like, ah, finally, Mike's going to teach on Revelation, and uh, that's, we're not going to Revelation today, unfortunately, sorry, uh, and there are others of you who kind of get cringed up with fear, like prophecy. Is this going to be something, something strange, something weird, something that's, that's going to be frightening? So how do we discern? What do we do with these kind of things in the world? How do we discern spirits? And what do we do with something like prophecy? How do we handle the words that we find in today's text, which is 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Corinthians 14? We will touch on that in just a minute. That's why I had it read. But just four verses here. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting at verse 19, going through verse 22, it says, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, remember that in this section, beginning back up there, I think at verse 12, if I'm correct, Yeah, verse 12, which I spoke about last week. Paul is really giving the church here practical instructions for how to live in unity. Remember, that's that's Jesus' grand vision that he prayed for in John 17. He prayed that the church would be one, that we would be united, that we would love each other. Jesus died so that we would be one, so that we would live in unity with each other. And by living in unity, by loving each other, we would be a witness to the world. And we we saw last week that this requires from us, it requires love, it requires patience, it requires grace, it requires laying down our lives for others and putting them ahead of ourselves. This is a vision that should govern our approach as we look at Verses 19 through 22 as well. Paul is still arguing, he's, he's still urging them towards unity in these verses as well. So these, these verses may look a little bit discombobulated. They, they may look kind of like a jumble, jumbled, uh, random bunch of commands, but we're going to see that they're clearly connected. And there's really one driving command, one driving imperative, and it's there in verse 19 do not quench the Spirit. That's a broad command for all of us, and specifically, in this text, this command is, is to be lived out in a particular way that we see in verse 20, "Do not despise prophecies." And then verse 20, 21 and 22 give instructions on how to do this. My plan was to preach all four of these verses this week, and I will be preaching on verse one, or verse 21, excuse me, verse 19, the first verse, mainly. So this, uh, as, as happens. When I start preparing for sermons, they become sermons in the plural. And so we'll, we'll explore this more next week. Now, like I said before, we, all have, we tend to have a particular response when we hear the word prophecy from excitement to fear and anywhere in between. So I want to try to spend some time wrapping our minds around Paul's own understanding of the Holy Spirit there in verse 19 and then Prophecy in verse 20, which means we really have to step back and kind of take a survey of the whole Bible. And mainly we'll look at the New Testament and Paul's own writings. But as we look back at the Old Testament, if you were to do a study and and search for the words spirit and prophecy together, you would find those words connected quite a few times throughout the Old Testament. So when the spirit fell on someone in the Old Testament, they would often prophesy. And we can even see in the New Testament, looking back, that the Old Testament prophets were speaking as the Spirit led them to speak. So the Holy Spirit and prophecy were very connected in the Old Testament. And then when we come to the New Testament, the most obvious place for us to start is in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. So we'll look there. I have it up on the board, the first four verses on the screen. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, And so these are the disciples after Jesus had ascended into heaven and they're waiting for the gift he said he would give them. They're all together in in this room and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And the first thing I want you to notice about this story is that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is visibly represented in this, in this story by tongues of fire. So little flames, if you will, of fire that appeared and rested above the disciples. And that, and that, in some sense, should remind us of a lot of imagery. But one thing it should remind us of, if we've read the Gospels, we should go back to Luke 3 and Matthew 3 and remember the words of John the Baptist. As he was looking forward to Jesus' coming, he says, I baptize you with water, but there's one more powerful than me. I can't, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He's coming, and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So the Holy Spirit, metaphorically then, is, is, is likened to fire. So if that's the case, what might it mean to quench the Spirit? Going back to 1 Thessalonians 5. It'd be like throwing water on a fire, wouldn't it? be like putting a fire out or, or extinguish it, extinguishing it, dousing it. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul is saying, don't do that. Don't throw water on the spirit. Don't throw a wet blanket on him. Don't quench the spirit. I mean, consider what might have happened here in Acts if these disciples had said, hey, this is kind of crazy. I don't like this. Get rid of those, Get rid of that fire. Hey, you stop talking in Spanish. You stop talking in French. Stop talking in all these funny languages. Stop, 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 stop. What would have happened if the apostles had quenched the spirit in that moment? We wouldn't have the church, folks. We wouldn't have the spread of the gospel in the book of Acts. We wouldn't have all these things. Now, fire is scary. It's powerful. Whenever I get my weed burner out, my wife gets anxious. (laughs) Okay, She's over there nodding like she runs for the hose, you know. Fire is scary, it's powerful, it can be destructive, but fire is also a life-giving blessing. We find warmth from it. We cook food with it. It's a powerful and a good tool, and the fire, who is the Holy Spirit, is the kind of fire that we want, and it's actually, here we see that it's actually more dangerous to quench him than it is to fan him into flames. Now, in response to this outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, a lot of people who are watching this and listening to this happen said, these people are drunk and, and they're, they've got new wine in them. And, and then the newly Spirit-filled Apostle Peter stands up and he begins to preach it. Well, he preaches a pretty short and powerful sermon that many people respond to. But in that sermon, he quotes the prophet Joel. So if you look at Acts 2, starting at verse 17, he is quoting Joel chapter 2 in his sermon. And here's what he says basically saying, This is what is being fulfilled right now. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So like Jeremiah, like Ezekiel, these other Old Testament prophets, Joel envisioned and prophesied of a time when God would give his very own spirit to his people. And that Pro- that prophetic word, that prophecy was coming true on the day of Pentecost, and that gift, that gift of the Holy Spirit, continues today. God continues to give his Holy Spirit to his people to indwell us as a seal of his covenant love for us and our salvation, as a, as a down payment of all the future blessings that we will have in him if we trust in Jesus Christ. So if you're a follower of Jesus, if you put your faith in him, you have the spirit of God dwelling in you. Amen. Amen. Now, what Joel's prophecy does here, though, is it also paints a picture of the ubiquity of this prophetic gifting. Now, his, his, it's interesting that his prophecy doesn't even mention tongues; it mentions prophecy and and the ubiquity of this in the last days. So, as all manner of people are all, it says, all flesh. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So, all manner of people will be filled with the spirit, not just men, but also the women. Not just the sons, but also the daughters. Not just the old, but also the young. Not just the the, the ones who are socially well-situated, but also the slaves and the servants. The Spirit will be given to all flesh, to all manner of people, and all manner of people will prophesy. So just as in the Old Testament, there's a a distinct connection here in Acts 2 between the the Holy Spirit and the, the gift or the act of prophecy in the New Testament. And that's apparent throughout the book of Acts, which we will look more closely at next week. But for now, what I want to do is turn to Paul's most extended teaching on this subject, which we find in 1 Corinthians. So turn, if you will, back over to 1 Corinthians. And this comes in the... um, in the context of a larger argument that, that Paul is making to the Corinthian church for unity. Does that sound familiar? He he's urging them to be one, to be united, to love each other, because they're a very divided church. This is the same issue that Paul is addressing in First Thessalonians five. And the main place where where prophecy is mentioned in Paul and his writings is this lengthy discussion in, in chapters 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians on spiritual gifts, on the gifts, if you will, of the Spirit. And the first thing that we see as we look at 1 Corinthians 12 is that prophecy is seen here as an important spiritual gift. So starting at verse 4 of chapter 12. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit point here is that the one spirit gives all of the gifts throughout the body. Now, I don't think this list is an exhaustive list of all the spiritual gifts. I think Paul is specifically focusing on these more kind of miraculous gifts that the, that the Corinthian church is so enamored with. They're so excited about these. It's a big deal, but it's creating division within the church, And so he says, everybody has gifts and the spirit is the one who gives them. Then a few verses later, he then begins, this is interesting, he assigns levels of importance to these various gifts within the church. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 27, it says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. He's just gone over this whole metaphor the church is like a body. We're each a member. We're a finger, we're an eye, we're a hand, we're we're a toe, whatever we are, we're each an important part of the body. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Those are all rhetorical questions, and the implied answer for every single one of them is no. Not everyone has all of these giftings. Not everyone has the same gifting. Everyone has different giftings. Then here's how he ends that in verse 31. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. They should be asking your question, which are the higher gifts and why should I desire them? In the interest of time, there are a few other passages in the New Testament that are uh, pertinent and that connect with this, and I'll just throw them up there for you. Romans 12, 6 through 8, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, and 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. You can look at those on your own, but you'll notice that prophecy in some way, shape, or form is mentioned in every one of these lists. We have to pay attention to that fact now the main point of paul's discussion in 1st corinthians 12 through 14 again is this urge toward unity which should sound familiar again, because that's what we're seeing in First Thessalonians 5. And in Corinth, one of the most divisive issues in this church was the issue of spiritual gifts, specifically speaking in tongues. This was a gift that had been put at the top of the importance level, and it had become kind of a spiritual litmus test. If you speak in tongues, then you're more spiritual than if you don't speak in tongues. So some were assigning status within the church based on that gift. And Paul's point in chapter 12 is that the Holy Spirit has given a diversity of gifts throughout the body, and then he's the one who's fit the body together in a way that pleases him. So even if we have a really important gift or or a gift that he calls one of the higher gifts, we don't get to brag about it because it's a gift. It was something that was given to us. We didn't earn it we didn't deserve it we didn't make it happen we didn't work really hard for it it's a free gift so the spiritual gifts are given for the purpose of unity not division and they should always be practiced and grounded in love which is the reason that first corinthians 13 sits right in the middle of this passage Now, the second point I would make here from this 1 Corinthians is that all spiritual gifts are given to build up the church. So he spent chapter 13 calling them to love as their main priority. And then he focuses on prophecy and tongues in chapter 14, where he says here, Pursue love, verse 1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may Prophesy. And notice the command, earnestly desire the gifts. Now, we usually earnestly desire things that we want for ourselves. Like, I earnestly desire a vacation in Maui. Okay? And I don't desire that for you. I desire that for me. Maybe, you know, for my wife, of course, but... We desire things we want for, for ourselves, but what Paul is calling them here to is earnestly desire these gifts driven by love, not by self selfishness or self-centeredness. Because the Holy Spirit gives these gifts, these, these gifts that you should earnestly desire, the Holy Spirit gives them to the body for the sake of the body, not for the sake of the one who has the gift. Always. The gift God gives that will build up the church the most is the gift that he's given you. Does that make sense? If you want a gift that will build up the church, use the one you have earnestly desire that he will give you gifts that will build up the church and then use them. So, so we should deeply desire whatever gifts God gives us, but desire the ones that build up and strengthen the church the most. So the next few verses here. Verse 2, For one who s- speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you to all speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So, the focus on this entire chapter is building up the church. Let's just look through it here. Verse five, so that the church may be built up. Verse seven, how will I benefit you? How will I build you up? How will I give you anything unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Verse 12, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And then verse 26, let all things be done for building up. The Holy Spirit's work in the body of Christ as he gives his gifts to his people is a work of unity, a work of edification, and a work of love. He's decided to dispense his gifts throughout the church, throughout his body for this reason. So when we resist the Spirit's work of unity in this way, we're in danger of quenching the Spirit. When you resist serving God through using your gifts for the sake of the body, you are quenching the Spirit. So coming back to 1 Thessalonians. 19 to 22. It's very likely that some people in this church weren't just weren't stifling their own gifts per se, but they were trying to restrict or for, forbid prophecy during the gathering of the church. So do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Why were they doing this? Um, there's Probably several reasons why they may have do, done this. Perhaps they'd seen the abuse of, of gifts like prophecy in the church. Maybe they'd had false prophets coming through their church in droves, and they were so tired of hearing these false prophecies that they just said, you know what? No more prophecy. Because we, we're just tired of having to discern all of this stuff. We're, we're tired of the fights and the garbage that's coming, in, coming around. Perhaps this was kind of a, a cultural leftover from their own experiences, their own history in paganism and serving idols. Perhaps there were a lot of prophecies in that realm and they didn't want anything to do with it. Now, these are the same kind of things that make some of us, many of us, wary of, of what would be called the charismatic gifts in the church today, and more on that next week. So let me summarize kind of what I've walked through if it just feels like we're all over the place this morning. Here's how it's summarized. The Holy Spirit is particularly connected with prophecy in both the Old and the New Testaments. And this is a gift which was made available according to the promise and given, as we see in Acts 2, on all, to all manner of people through the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And in the early church, prophecy was seen as an important gift, a desirable gift, because of its unique ability to build up, to encourage, and to strengthen the church. However, as we look at these passages, we see that prophecy wasn't the only gift It was one gift of many, and Paul makes clear that the purpose of all spiritual gifts is for every believer to have a place in building up and strengthening the church. Okay, so that was a maybe three-sentence summary of where we've been this morning. Now I want to just take it to a place where, okay, what does it mean for me? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for us to not quench the Spirit? Now, Again, I'll just give you a fair warning that I'll be returning to this text next week, trying to attempt to unpack. And I'll just say, it was four verses, and I was like unpacking a suitcase, and it was like the bottomless suitcase, okay? So it'll keep going next week, and we'll see what we find in it. In regards to the Holy Holy Spirit and the spiritual gifts in the church, and we'll look at prophecy in particular. So don't worry, you, you probably have about eight or nine or hundred different questions that come up as I talk this morning, and I tend to address many of those next week, but for now let 's just return to this command: do not quench the spirit first thessalonians 5 nineteen don't douse don't throw water on don't extinguish his presence and work in your midst so so based on kind of this broader picture of spiritual gifting in the New Testament, I think we have to we have to begin by addressing how we might be particularly prone to quench the Spirit today. And I think the first way that we do this is we quench the Holy Spirit's work in the church when we neglect or ignore or despise the manifestation of spiritual gifts in our midst. Now, I'm not even addressing here Whether or not the gift of prophecy is still around, per se, we're going to talk about that more next week, or the next week, or the next week. But I'm thinking more broadly here, just at spiritual gifts in general. So we quench the Holy Spirit when we neglect, uh, ignore, or despise spiritual gifts within the church. And I think the first way that we do this, which I've already kind of gotten a little passionate about, the first way that we do this is in ourselves, We despise or neglect spiritual gifts um, when we fail to exercise the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given us, has given me, has given you in order to build up the church. So are you a teacher? Are you a servant? Are you a helper? Are you an administrator? Are you an exhorter? Do you have the gift of faith? Do you have the gift of discernment or the, the gift of evangelism? No matter who you are, I believe the scripture teaches this clearly, no matter who you are, if you are a follower of Jesus, the spirit has given you a gift at least. And he's given you the gifts to build up the body, not to enrich yourself, not to make yourself known, not to keep them to yourself. And we quench the spirit when we keep our gifts hidden or dormant. And I think we can do that in several ways. I think one way that we can, that we can neglect the spirit of God that's in us and the, the spiritual gifts that he's given us is that we can let the professionals do it. You know, that guy is so good at doing this, we should pay him to do it or her to do it. And then just kind of let them do it. Or, or we look at somebody who's really gifted in a certain area and say, I think I'm gifted in that area, but I'm not as good as they are. So there's really no reason that I should be using my gifts. And I would say that that's not the way to look at it. We must always be looking for the ways that God would have us to serve in humility, pouring out what we can for him. I think the other way that we do this is that we become really selfish with our time and energy. So instead of asking God for the higher gifts that will build up the church, we ask God for the gifts that will take the least amount of time, effort, energy, or money. I want the gift that takes me half an hour a week, Okay, And if I can do that, if I can fit that in, awesome, right? We refuse to use our gifts because we simply just don't want to be generous or, or we're, our lives are so busy or overwhelmed or we have so many other priorities that, that serving and upbuilding the body sits on the back burner. And when, when we refuse to use our gifts for the sake of the church, we are in danger of quenching the spirit. And I'll just remember this, that the gift God gives that will most build up the church is the one that he has given you. The second way I think that we despise or neglect spiritual gifts in the church is in others. And I think this is what was happening in Thessalonica. I think there were prophets in the church who were trying to speak as the Holy Spirit was leading them, and and the rest of the church was saying, no, we don't want to hear that. So they were kind of shutting them down and quenching them. And I think what we do in the church today might be something similar, but I think when we despise the gift of others, we start ranking different gifts, in our minds, And we look at those who use what we think to be the most important gifts or, or exercise them really well as, as really gifted and really up here. So the more flashy gifts, the ones which seem to require more talent, we give more respect to. And so then we, we look down on those who maybe have the behind-the-scenes gifting or those whose gifting doesn't outshine someone else's gifting. And I think we inadvertently as a church do this by... Discouraging some people when we spotlight the stronger gifts of others. So the janitor, who's not even here today, the janitor usually doesn't get as many props as the preacher. I don't think that's right. So we don't want to despise or neglect or quench the spirit in others. The second way I think overarching in a broad way that we can quench the spirit is Uh, we quench his work in the church when we either resist unity or foster division. The work that the Spirit wants to do is to build up the church, to make the church strong, to build us up into the image and the character of Christ. And oftentimes what we do is we choose division and it's so easy to be divided over things, even over things that don't matter. So we tend, as Christians, we tend to fight over issues, over opinions, and over preferences. And in the church, our fiercest fighting should be for the sake of unity. That's what we should fight for. And that's where our energies should go. And when we nurture division, we're working against the Spirit. We're, we're quenching His work in our midst. Remember, the Spirit's job is giving gifts to the church to, as Ephesians 4 tells us, build up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the vision that he has for us. So next week, again, we're going to look more particularly at how verse 20 might apply to us, if it does at all. In other words, we're going to be asking questions like, is, is prophecy still, does it still exist in the church? Does the Holy Spirit still give it to believers? Or has it ceased, which many, many believers think that. And if it still does exist in the church, which many other believers think, what does it look like? How should it be practiced? What should we do with it? But for now, can we just pray for help? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for sending your spirit to us, for placing him in our hearts and empowering us with your very presence and power. Father, we confess that we're guilty of quenching his work far too often and we ask you by your mercy, by your grace to forgive us for that. We wanna accept the spirit and his gifts humbly And ask for the wisdom, the courage not to quench him. And Jesus, the eternal son of God, we're grateful that you have died on our behalf. Grateful that you've you've gone through death and and resurrection and through that you've given us life. And you have sent your spirit to your church just as you promised. You've not left us alone. You've not left, left us as orphans. You've given us an advocate and an empower and he is with us and he is in us and we praise you for that Jesus. And then finally Holy Spirit we ask that you would spark a fire in us. A fire of love, a fire of grace and patience, of peace, unity, of service, of humility, of of new life, of courage and of power in our church. Holy Spirit come. Do your work in our midst for the sake of Jesus and his glory in this church, in this community, in the world, we pray. Amen.